Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined once again, as always, by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. This is a part two, picking up our conversation from last week, all about our COVID retrospective, looking back at the pandemic and thinking about the ethical and social and medical questions that were thrown up by that period in our lives and thinking with a bit of hindsight with the benefit of a few years under our belts how do we reflect on some of those issues um how do we do what we do differently um and so last week we tackled a lot of things around kind of public health medicine uh, excess mortality stats and long covid mental health vaccination uh and this year we, this year <laughs> this week we wanted to move on to think a little bit about a broader scope things that affected the whole of society the church um uh, and one of those issues that we devoted a whole kind of uh, episode to in our original COVID series two or three years ago was the question of um, of triage and the ethics of of triage. You know, there was at the time there was a lot of fears that healthcare systems and hospitals would be overwhelmed by patients uh, coming being brought to them with suffering from severe COVID, and that they wouldn't have enough beds, they wouldn't have enough ventilators, enough spaces in intensive care to serve them all, and so they would be left with the unenviable choice of trying to choose who you know has their life saved by being put in the ventilator and who is left to die in a corridor um did that actually come to pass at all in, in at least in in the uk system that you're familiar with well um it didn't really come to pass not in a full full-blooded way i mean we had seen horrifying scenes in some other countries particularly i remember in italy mm. uh, where uh, the intensive care um, facilities became completely overwhelmed and people were dying in corridors and so on. And there's no doubt that that had a huge impact on the British government. And as a result, they started an extraordinary um, process of developing uh, the so-called Nightingale hospitals, taking over conference centres. Um, and in a space of, of days and a few weeks, uh, creating uh, huge numbers of intensive care places there were uh, attempts to get ventilators large quantities of uh, mechanical ventilators and intensive care machinery um so the issue at stake was um up until the pandemic the deciding whether somebody should be admitted for an intensive care unit was really based on what was the chances that they would benefit from it in other words, it's the individual patient's best interest, which is what has to guide the doctors. Um, but what we were facing was the possibility that um, there were simply too many people who could benefit from intensive care uh, and not enough intensive care spaces, in which case you would have to use some other kind of criteria to decide who gets the treatment. And that raised all kinds of spectres. You know, would, would for instance, would you prioritise health professionals uh, if, if they are over other people? Would you prioritise uh, wealthy people, people who are economically you know, productive versus people who are homeless? Um, and 
I remember the BMA were coming up with suggestions as to how one would um, do the make these kind of de- decisions, um, and uh, I was very concerned about this, and, and as were a whole number of other Christian doctors. And uh, in the discussions that were going on, we argued against this kind of um, decision making. In the event, I. It didn't really happen. Uh, we, we got very close to it. Um, one of the things that became apparent was that there was a real shortage of staff, more than equipment. So mm-hmm. even though these uh, Nightingale hospitals were pretty well equipped, uh, very few of them were used at all. And uh, as a result, um, the, those desperately difficult triage decisions didn't have to be made. And it it probably was true that some older people who could have survived if they'd gone into ITU, decisions were made not to admit them. Uh, the doctors were, were using very stringent criteria uh, based on previous uh, illnesses, and but it was all medical criteria. It wasn't based on other social input. Um, and I think the other vital difference about covid because what we were all worried about was influenza pandemic influenza Mm. and because in pandemic influenza it's particularly young fit adults who are that have the highest mortality and what was so unusual about covid was that the mortality increased steadily with every 10 years of age so that it was far and away people in their 70s 80s and 90s who were at very high risk and there were very few healthy young adults who were requiring support. And therefore, those terrible decisions, which we were worried were going to have to be made, as how on earth you would decide who to admit to intensive care, by and large, they weren't necessary. But the truth is, is it not that actually, in, in reality, what we did effectively, without realizing what we decided, we decided that the kind of elderly, chronically ill people were but the ones who would be sacrificed because there was this huge effort to clear up space in beds and to empty out the wards in a, in anticipation of a huge spike of of covid patients and so that you know hospitals up and down the land were basically forced to discharge you know almost everyone who could literally you know who wouldn't die if you got them out of the hospital and and many of these people were elderly kind of chronically unwell people who were sent packed off to to care homes for the elderly and what we now know is they were some of the most dangerous places for for you to be during the pandemic because they were you know huge vectors of 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 virus virus of the virus and and in many ways it's it's believed that actually often the virus got into care homes because these people deemed discharged from hospitals had already caught it without realizing and then they were sent to care homes full of you know elderly but well people and sat and tragically kind of hot housed the virus in the way in in the inside the care homes yes i I think there's absolutely no doubt that that was a major catastrophe um in terms of mortality that many many elderly people were uh, discharged uh, into uh, care homes carrying the virus and as a result there were very high levels of infection taking place in care homes and and high levels of, of mortality I think in terms of the 
intensive care units themselves, I think pre-pandemic, there was a general feeling that even if the chances of survival were small, um, uh, many doctors felt, you know, and particularly if there was uh, pressure from everybody, from relatives and so on, uh, that often elderly people with multiple pathologies were still going into ITU and were often dying in an intensive care unit. And that with the advent of the pandemic, people became much more, doctors became much more concerned to say what is, you know, we should only be giving people intensive care if there's a significant chance, a more than 50% chance that they're actually going to respond to the treatment. And, mm. you know, arguably, I, I think that's that's an appropriate thing. I, I think that, you know, dying in an intensive care unit is a terrible place. It's a terrible place to die. And particularly if, with because of the pandemic restrictions, nobody else, no your family, no relatives, no loved ones can be there. You're dying in a in a totally alien, very uh, hostile environment. A common issue in kind of Western medical systems long before COVID has been overtreatment. Has been you know relatives, sometimes even doctors, kind of unwillingness to do what you've said and to say actually, while I could technically give this person. May often elderly with kind of multiple health concerns this kind of treatment actually the benefits don't outweigh the, the downsides but people are to, una feel unable socially to kind of um to say that and so you know people often die with you know plugged full of tubes and and wires and, and things having this fu fundamentally futile treatment because we're kind of too socially embarrassed not to give it to them or because the the relatives insist upon it even if there's no chance of it actually extending life do you think covid has helped us kind of break our addiction to that and 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 everyone has been forced to confront these very you know what seemed to us non-medical people quite kind of shocking but actually to you as doctors are kind of everyday decisions about triage do you think COVID has helped us kind of start to wrestle with that as a society? And maybe we might be better at kind of not doing this excessive, burdensome, futile overtreatment. It's it's a very interesting question. I, I think the honest answer is it's too early to say. Uh, I, th I think it has meant that uh, clinicians, especially intensive care clinicians, have become more focused on uh, objective criteria and, and likelihood of people to benefit. Um. Having said that, this trend towards medicalization, uh, you know, just continues. I think um, there haven't there hasn't been any sort of major change there, and I, I think uh, whether or not there has been a sort of fundamental change in attitudes towards in intensive care, I don't know. I also know that a lot of the health staff were deeply traumatized by the triage decisions they were forced to make. You know, having to make these decisions under pressure um, and and seeing the consequences of your decisions, having to watch people die who might have survived if they'd been admitted to an ITU and being the one responsible to take that decision, it does put a, a huge psychological load on clinicians. And I, I think there is a, an ongoing um, psychological trauma um, from from doctors who and health staff who were in the front line at the time of the pandemic. Hmm. Speaking of health workers and, and staff, we did another episode um, in the, in the lockdowns looking at, you know, what it was like working in the NHS and hospitals in Britain during the lockdown during the pandemic. And, 
And, and one of the questions we asked, you, you were quite concerned about was whether our kind of at that time, very relentless focus on PPE, personal protective equipment, you know, the masks and the gowns and the vent and the gloves and eye protection and everything else that, you know, doctors needed to, to try and not catch COVID from their patients. And there was huge scandals here in the UK about the lack of it and, and, and doctors who were kind of having to cut up bin bags to fashion their own PPE impromptu and, and and then the government trying to fast track buy some and ending up buying a whole bunch of of rubbish masks that had to be incinerated all that stuff there's this huge <laughs> conversation around ppe um and you were worried it might actually have unintended consequences for this kind of idea of medicine as a sacrificial vocation that we were perhaps tilted the balance too much towards protect myself as the doctor or nurse before uh, uh, the idea of taking risks to look after your patients how do you reflect on that question with, with, with the benefit of hindsight? Yes, it, it, it is interesting how um, attitudes have changed over the years. And certainly historically, um, being a health professional, uh, was all it was always regarded as it was well known that you were taking on risks um, because you were caring for sick people. Um, and that's, this was part of the job. And... Um, your, your first commitment was to be there for your patients, whatever that meant in terms of potentially the risks to yourself. And I, I think attitudes have changed. I, I was quite struck by a, a junior doctor telling me that of the conflict they felt when a patient that they were with uh, suddenly had a cardiac arrest and so needed to have immediate resuscitation and cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And yet... Because potentially uh, the patient had COVID, uh, the doctor had to withdraw and then spent several minutes putting on all the protective gear uh, before starting uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, uh, which, you know, meant that the chances of success were massively reduced uh, just in order to protect the doctor. And, and that just felt to me... Um, although th this was the standard teaching that everyone had to do it it felt I felt very conflicted about that and thinking if I was in that situation I think my first responsibility would be to try and get the patient the emergency treatment they required and you know if that meant that I might be exposed to COVID too bad but um I, so I I think these these are difficult uh, and challenging questions Having said that, of course, you know, it's often said in first aid emergency response, you know, the most important thing is that you don't become a casualty yourself if you're attending to a road accident. You know, if you allow yourself to become a casualty because you're trying to save the patient, you're you're just adding to the problem. So these are complex issues of trying to work out what our calling is in, in often rapidly unfolding emergency situations. Mm. It's often known as the oxygen mask principle, isn't it? Like you see in in the safety briefings and aeroplanes, they always say, you know, if the oxygen mask drop down, always put on your own mask first before you attempt to help others, particularly children, put on their mask, which seems kind of selfish and 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 uh, the wrong way round, but is obviously kind of well designed because if you lose consciousness, then then no one else can be helped. And I think particularly when you're talking about it, you know, uh, it's one thing to take a risk for yourself and say, do you know what, I'm just going to take the risk that I might catch COVID. Uh, I'm a young, healthy doctor, I'm probably going to be okay. And I'd rather take the risk to, to try and save this patient's life. But if you catch COVID and then walk around the ward 
giving it to all your sick patients and the rest of the ward round, you're actually not doing anyone any favors at all. And so it's very difficult to try and balance what is your kind of moral responsibility there. Is it paradoxically to kind of act in a selfish manner first? Or, or, or is that, as you say, undermining something significant about how, you know, by signing up to these caring professions, you should really be signing up to take take on a degree of a degree of risk? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the short answer is that we should work in institutions that allow individual conscience, individual choices to be as much as possible expressed rather than having blanket rules. You will do this. You are not allowed to do that. I, I think healthy institutions allow humans to, you know, who are mature, uh, competent professionals to take their own ethical judgments and, and do what they feel is right, particularly in, in times of emergency. And speaking of taking risks, um, you, you mentioned in, in last week's episode that you'd spent some time before COVID by coincidence, kind of reading about um, how the ancient church had lived through common times of pandemics, plagues, as they would have been known in those days, uh, you know, where infectious diseases kind of suddenly arise and sweep through populations, which wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. Um, and how you'd been doing some reading about church history, about how Christians, the early church, had kind of lived in an incredibly sacrificial way often, and, and rather than kind of fleeing the big cities, which is what the kind of elite of the ancient world tended to do to try and find safety in the countryside. They would often stay to try and care for those who were sick, um, often becoming, you know, Christians often becoming sick themselves and dying and how inspirational you kind of found that as a Christian physician, not ever expecting that, you know, um, we would be living as a church through, through a, a contemporary plague, if you like. Um, how, how do you think the Christian the kind of antecedents we have our christian forebears how how do we match up to their performance during during covid-19 well it certainly it was very inspirational to me reading about these contemporary accounts of um the way the christians acted because it was so completely countercultural i mean you know the 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 even the physicians the hippocratic physicians the first thing you did when plague appeared in your town was to head for the hills um and um so when the christians refused to flee but in fact went out and cared and did practical nursing care for the pagan people uh in their midst that created such a an astonishing uh an impact um that that many uh church historians say that this contributed to the explosive growth of the church in those first early centuries uh, the fascinating thing is 20 centuries down the line, this ethic of self-sacrificial care, which at the time was completely new to the ancient world, the ancient world had never seen anything like that, um, that now because of the impact of Christianity over you know, the last two millennia, this has now become embedded into, this is what we expect emergency workers to do. I mean, it's what we expect not just doctors, but um, everybody who's in that front line, um, ambulance, uh, paramedics, fire, um, and so on. We expect them to take risks with their own life in order to, um, in order to serve others. So it, 
it has become embedded into the public services. And, and there were astonishing acts of heroism going on within the health service. And one of the sad things to me is, you know, the lists of doctors and health professionals who died um, as a result of their work. They they developed COVID and they died completely as a result of their work. And yet, by and large, they've been forgotten and, and not celebrated. If you compare that with the soldiers, the soldiers, the fallen of the great wars who died protecting their country you know they they receive military honors they're celebrated with plaques and you know and we never forget them and yet the health workers who sacrifice their lives the danger is many of them most of them have just been forgotten and, and that seems to me that's wrong and and is there a, a potentially unwelcome comparison between the heroism of our nhs key workers out there on the front lines risking their lives to to keep people safe and to try and save life and dying in the process and and how you know the church today acted which was largely just to stay indoors move on to zoom and, and carry on as before yeah i do remember at the time feeling this astonishing sense of disconnect that here were these heroic things going on in a and e departments just down the road now here i'm in central london and within five miles there are several major A&E departments where I knew that these astonishing things were going on um, and people were dying and uh, people were sacrificing themselves and so on and yet the vast majority of the population was sitting in their gardens if you remember the weather was wonderful at the time everyone was getting a suntan you know enjoying the fact they were off work and um, and because of the internet and television and Netflix and so on, a lot of people were having a, a wonderful time. So I do remember at the time this extraordinary sense of disconnect, um, hmm. which, of course, was so totally different from other times when the whole country was at threat. Um, in the Second World War, London was under the Blitz. Um, there weren't people who were just sunning themselves, enjoying it. Everybody, the whole population knew it was under threat. But this was a very different kind of threat. I remember being quite frustrated by some of the quality of the kind of internal conversation within the church I was seeing. You know, there was this huge controversy in the Church of England in particular because, um, uh, you know, the government had said that you couldn't hold church services publicly, um, but you were within the rules. If you were a member of the clergy, you were allowed to go into your church in theory and kind of hold a service just solo, maybe live streaming it. Um, but then the archbishops of the church kind of issued an edict saying kind of in solidarity, clergy should should not do that and they should kind of voluntarily stay at home like everyone else's rather than being the only ones allowed to go into church buildings. And and this caused this kind of huge firestorm of controversy and people were arguing about it endlessly and shouting at each other and complaining. And I remember just kind of pulling my hair out and thinking like, this is the unprecedented moment of na in, of national crisis, international crisis. The country needs spiritual leadership and sucker. And all we can do is tear each other to shreds mm. over whether the building is valuable or not, and whether a mass done in your kitchen table is insufficient <laughs> compared to the mass done live stream from your altar next door in the, in the church <laughs> building. I just thought, nobody cares. This is such an unbelievably 
self-indulgent example of navel gazing at times of crisis it did make me feel slightly ashamed to be a christian at times <laughs> well and i do think in retrospect there was a terrible failure of christian leadership um because i you know we were all glued to those uh, daily news updates but who was prominent it, the answer it was it was the politicians and it was the doctors um, Chris and... Whitty becomes a household name, <laughs> but no right. one's listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> yeah, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, you know, or the Archbishop of Westminster, the Roman Catholic Archbishop. You know, if, if all the Christian leaders had got together, possibly with other religious leaders, and said, this is a moment of existential crisis, this is how the country should behave, this is what we're calling on, all, all uh, followers of Christ you know, this is how we're calling on you to behave. You know, I think people would have listened, you know, if there was a day of prayer, if there was that kind of thing. But instead, uh, I, I think there was a, a terrible failure and therefore it seemed as though Christianity really has very little to say uh, at this moment of national crisis. That's funny. I remember us actually having this very same debate at the moment and I was a little bit more more forgiving, I think, than you were in part because I just think there is very little audience for that message anymore. And people often talk back, think back to, you know, was it William Temple during World War II? Was he the Archbishop mm, of Canterbury mm. and kind of doing these inspirational speeches on the radio and kind of having national days of prayer for the nation during the Blitz? And I think, well, that's all very well. Well, that was in a context in which 80 plus percent of the population would have called themselves Christians maybe 20 or 30 percent were actually going to church on a regular basis and that just we just don't live in that world anymore and I think it's highly likely that if Justin Welby and et al had tried to kind of seize the airwaves and and insist that they had this kind of unique message to share during a time of crisis no one was listening but then there's a kind of chicken and egg to that which is that People, the, the kind of Christian leaders, national Christian leaders have lost confidence to do that role mm. of spiritual leadership mm. because they fear no one is listening. Then because there's, they don't do that anymore, no one is listening and you get kind of stuck in this vicious cycle and maybe you need someone courageous and say, do you know what, I'm going to step out in faith and just try and take on this role, even if I think no one is listening because, you know, that's what I'm called to do for such a time as this. Yes, and, and that's, I think I, that's what I would say. And actually, I think you're wrong that uh, people wouldn't listen because, you know, I, I think you think of another national event like the, um, the coronation and um, the way that actually the Christian element of that was something that was prominent and celebrated. And I also think, you know, in, in the UK, we've had other events like um, that famous sermon uh to the politicians do you remember that the talk to the politicians oh, yes that, the prayer um, breakfast the prayer breakfast and that suddenly you know prompted Sajid Javid to resign yeah it cut through about... and people suddenly were you know this is about righteousness and about honesty integrity and yeah integrity and so you know I, it's a strange thing and of course but I I think that that it is possible for when Christians act together, particularly in concert, I think when they are attacking one another and, and as you say, having their petty little disputes, it's a waste of time. But I think when Christians come together and, and it's seen that we have this common platform and we're saying this is, we as Christians want to respond in this way. Uh, I just hope and pray that, you know, that, that perhaps lessons were learned and if there's a future, 
<laughs> that's that God terrible forbid. politicians. That's a terrible politicians' phrase. Lessons have been learned, yes. which means absolutely nothing has been nothing learned. has changed. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean the other thing people talked about was there was a lot of kind of brief spasms of excitement about maybe the COVID is prompting some kind of lasting shift in. In, in in people's interest in things of faith you know and there were yeah. lots of people sharing oh you know google searches for how to pray have gone up 10 100 and you know people were saying you know i did i moved my church service online and i'm now having a hundred times more people follow along online than ever came in person and there was lots of excitement about whether this was kind of this crisis would bring people back to god um did any of that last? Have you seen any sign that, that secularization and church decline has been at all ar- arrested by by, by yeah. lockdown and pandemic? Well, you're the religious journalist. This is your. <laughs> I've done the medical stuff. This is your. This is your area. Um, the answer is no. <laughs> oh dear. If, if, really? if anything, it's if anything, it's got worse. Yeah. As, there's there's some studies have looked into church attendance and found that actually, uh, while it's you know it was declining long before COVID uh, there was a noticeable down tick in, in afterwards and those, and people and congregations have not recovered on average. Um, so basically there was a percentage of people who stopped coming to church during COVID and haven't come back. Yeah. Uh, that, that it's really sad. Depress- depressingly. <laughs> it is. Um, but in a way, I'm not that surprised. I mean, having said that, I mean, there was that remarkable statistic of the number of young people who tried a worship service online. And so, you know, and that fits, you know, we've talked about the people who say, no, you know, I have no religion. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Mm. And and I think that category is, is definitely there. And and if anything is growing. So there are, there aren't many people who are hard, uh, nosed atheists you know the, the 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 physicalists who say it's just science it's just physics you know i think they're a, a relatively small minority but what we do have is this huge percentage of the population who have some kind of interest in in spiritual things but who are deeply disaffected and turned off by institutions mm. and by and by belonging to what they see as a, a sort of corrupt and unhelpful institution. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, services online. I think one of the the few positives for the church that came out of COVID was that it forced churches of all sizes and stripes to to grapple with doing church online. And yes, a lot of them, once the time had passed, have kind of, you know, put put their cameras away and gone back to to normal services. But at least it shows that there is the capacity. And and I know lots of churches have decided to carry on live streaming worship or or at least increasing their kind of digital offering, which I think is generally positive. It has some complicated factors, but I think generally a positive thing in terms of reaching people in this country who have never set foot across the threshold of a church building before. Um, I think that we have to count that as one of the kind of wins, unanticipated wins of COVID is is forcing Christians to to get to grips with the digital revolution in a way they hadn't before. And I think there's no doubt also that for some elderly um, uh, and people with disabilities, people uh, who had children with special needs and so on, who had felt completely disenfranchised from 
uh, you know, the, the practical difficulties of getting to a physical church service, they suddenly discovered that online they could take part. And, and, and so, again, an a interesting mix, isn't it? So for, for some people with real genuine difficulties of participating physically, online services were a sudden, wonderful opening of the door. For other people, it turned out much easier not to, oh, I won't bother to go to church, I can just, I'll have it on <laughs> and have the screen off, and then I can get on with my life, but I can feel I've done my religious bit. Hmm. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And what about in the in the medical world? Um, how, do you think COVID has kind of accelerated a rise towards using technology? Telemedicine is often called, you know, seeing your doctor on, on your smartphone rather than going in person and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Has, that, has that really kicked off? Undoubtedly. I mean, the fascinating thing about that is that uh, pre-pandemic, although it was all perfectly possible to do telemedicine and all the technology was there, uh, there was a, an enormous resistance to it from all the health professionals, uh, mainly, uh, from the majority anyway, saying that, no, 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 you know, we have to see people in face-to-face, you know, and uh, telemedicine will always be very second-rate and so on. And then it was almost like, you know, the lockdown comes and the entire NHS pivots on a on a, on a dime, and uh, all of a sudden, every doctor is doing telemedicine and lots of them are discovering actually it works remarkably well, although it does raise all kinds of interesting challenges, um, particularly smartphone based uh, medicine. Uh, maybe that's something for another another time. But uh, I, I think undoubtedly this is now here to stay. And, and you were saying that your own GP insists on having telemedicine appointments. And yeah, it's it's almost kind of frustrating, as you say, that pivot has, has been very strong in my experience. You know, I've been members of several different GP practices uh, over the years. And before COVID, none of them offered the ability to just request a phone appointment on the consultation. You had to just join what was always a two plus week waiting list to go and see them in person by which time the issue which for me had generally been quite minor things had probably cleared up anyway so it felt like the service was basically inaccessible for me and then now ever since covid the gp i'm with currently refuses to see any patient for any reason without having first done a kind of filter of doing it on the phone and trying to fob you off with a phone call (laughs) and it's just almost intensely You're not being fobbed off. You're being offered excellent uh, online yeah. care. Distance, distance treatment. Distance yeah. care, yes, exactly. Yeah. How dare you fobbed off. It's just, it's, it just seems like a classic kind of NHS monolithic thing where it's either computer says <laughs> yes. no, stick with the system, get locked, lost in the bureaucracy, or then it suddenly pivots to computer yeah. says yes, always, and no matter what your issue is, no matter how urgent, no matter what yeah. it is, what will first... Even if yeah. I know full well that I'm going to have a fiber conversation, then they're going to say, oh, could you come in so I can see that in person? But first, <laughs> everyone has to have this tedious phone conversation first. And so, I mean, it is in general, I, I'm being slightly facetious, it's in general is a step forward, for, certainly for people like me, young, healthy people with kind of very low level issues. I do think, I do hope my GP is not being quite so fascistic about phone calls with 
you know, elderly people <laughs> with their chronic conditions who might be kind of isolated and lonely and need to have some face-to-face contact to have some proper medical treatment. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Telemedicine is off, is creating all kinds of other challenges because, of course, basically you can do telemedicine anywhere in the world. Um, <laughs> and therefore, you know, specialist centres are finding that they're being you know, approached by patients around the world. And then, you know, when people move, they don't want to be referred back to other centers. And so there are all kinds of new, interesting challenges. But positively, uh, I think there's no doubt that telemedicine is going to be one of those amazingly powerful tools, particularly in low resource countries, you know, because basically it means that potentially um, you can have, you know, absolutely world-leading advice and input uh, available to people in in the most remote settings. Hmm. And the other kind of strand of technology during COVID was um, states and their citizens. You know, we saw lots of countries launched COVID apps, which they encouraged people to download so that you could kind of track um, COVID and try and do a kind of contact tracing and social distancing, quarantining, automated via your phones um, and then some other slightly more authoritarian countries also used uh, smartphone technology to try and corral people into certain places when they're imposing lockdowns or to uh, you know f- forbid you from using certain public services or going into certain buildings unless you had the right kind of covid pass on your phone um, obviously you know I deleted the the UK's COVID app many, many, <laughs> many months ago. It seems irrelevant. I don't really want to be told I'm going to have to uh, isolate anymore uh, for for COVID. But but some countries, I understand, we talked about this in our previous episode about persecution, actually have kind of used the almost the natural experiment of the pandemic as a way of honing their ability to surveil and control their citizenry via smartphones and apps. Absolutely. I mean... I don't know if you remember that the, the the great theory was that Bluetooth was going to be able to uh, tell you whether you'd been in contact with um, oh, that's right. a um, someone <laughs> with COVID. That turned out to be a complete waste of time. Um, you know that people that, were getting pinged yeah. because their next door neighbour through their thin wall had <laughs> exactly. had COVID because <laughs> they were watching TV only a meter apart, but there was an entire piece of plaster exactly. and masonry between them. <laughs> exactly, you know, or someone at the other was in the end of your, um, you know, your railway carriage, you know, <laughs> got you got pinged and so on. So, so Bluetooth was a complete disaster, and I mean, you know, anybody the the, the technology the technology specialist could have told you that. Um, it wasn't rocket science, but the ability to monitor uh, people using cell phone signals, using uh, to know where everybody has been. I, I mean, do you remember that Google uh, produced maps showing where people had had been? You know, just uh, aggregating mm-hmm. and suddenly just revealing how much even Google Maps was yeah. just um, all tr- tracking. So. And there's no doubt that in authoritarian countries, particularly China, but other countries as well, um, COVID gave a chance for these very invasive surveillance techniques to be uh, rolled out. And and the excuse was we need to do this in order to monitor the population. But, you know, now we've learned how to do it. We're going to carry on doing it. And uh, so I, I think that... 
many of these surveillance techniques have just been ramped up and uh, continue to be used and continue to be available. Hmm. And that was the kind of great conspiracy theory here in the West, wasn't it? That the lockdowns and the vaccines and the apps are all part of this kind of shadowy covert attempt to to control people and that the pandemic wasn't kind of an excuse to let government kind of grab this control over people, which clearly wasn't the case. And, you know, as COVID receded, so did all of the contact tracing. Do you remember remember you had to use to scan your phone when you went into a restaurant for contact tracing purposes? Crazy things like that. All gone. Thank goodness. But sadly, the conspiracy theory is actually conspiracy fact in China because the government very much did use the infrastructure created, some of which already existed, to be honest, um, and other authoritarian regimes, I'm sure, are the same to uh, to track people and, and, and monitor them, uh, which is, I think, concerning. And particularly as we move forward, you know, into the next few decades, if this is what we can do with fairly rudimentary technology, such as Bluetooth and QR codes, you know, and 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 GPS chips inside smartphones, it, it does make you concerned about what the next wave of of authoritarian governments is going to be able to do with with you know the iPhone thirty or the iPhone fifty <laughs> uh, a few decades down the line. Yes, well, I think I think these battles over over the use of technology are not going to go away. And um, again, we've talked about this before. I, I do think that um, conventional ideas of privacy. You know that nobody. I don't want anybody to know where I am and what I'm doing. I, I basically think that that ship has sailed, um, and that uh, we have to accept that somebody is going to know where we are and what we're doing. The question is how that information is controlled, who is it, who has access to it, and how it's being used by governments and by technology companies. Hmm. I guess we have to see how life works in an era of kind of perpetual and constant transparency where rather than presuming you have kind of anonymity in the crowd at all times you kind of have to presume that actually if someone wants to know where i am they'll find out someone wants to know what i'm talking about there is a way of finding out someone wants to know what i'm clicking on there's probably have a way to find out and and that will gradually start to shift and change behavior implicitly i suspect um, yes, and of course, and again, it goes back to the episode on digital privacy. It's it's those who are, including Christians, people who are persecuted minorities, uh, where this is a particular concern, isn't it? How how can we uh, protect vulnerable minorities, including Christians, in uh, persecuted environments, hmm. from um, being abused by the powerful? And just lastly, coming into land after our exhaustive COVID retrospective, um, we did an episode, you might remember, about lockdowns as a kind of uh, pandemic tool. Uh, We mentioned last week about the kind of unprecedentedness of this, the fact that it wasn't in the kind of pandemic toolbook and toolbox. And and there was a lot of questions about would it work? And and actually, they were on one level, if you measure by compliance, very successful. But I think there's been a increasingly fierce debate though again it fizzled out very quickly once everyone wanted to move on as covid went on about whether actually they were we were hitting the balance right in terms of you know lockdowns might have been effective at crushing transmission and and therefore saving immediate lives deaths from the virus itself but did they have unintended consequences uh, um, you know, pulling children out of schools, shuttering businesses, isolating the elderly and the lonely, um, all those kind of things. And, and and is that, you know, partly why we're seeing these excess deaths and, 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 and are kind of stubbornly refusing to come back to normal? 
Yes, and and I think uh, I, I think that's right. Uh, again, like so many other things, it turned out to <clears throat> depend on your socioeconomic circumstances, didn't it? If you were living in a nice big house with good internet and a nice garden, uh, it turned out the lockdown was actually remarkably easy uh, to cope with. Um, on the other hand, if you're living in very cramped accommodation uh, without uh, space, um, the lockdown could be absolutely catastrophic, uh, particularly if there's sort of, you know, psychological, uh, emotional, you know, broken relationships, violence, drug taking, you know, you can just see how then forcing a lockdown is just like a pressure cooker. Um, and so so often it's it's the well-off who do well and those who are vulnerable who who suffer the most yeah yeah definitely do you think christians should have kind of spoken up more against lockdowns or at least questioning it more because i think there was a there was a certainly a fear of I me mean, my kind of circles at the time that we didn't want to get kind of associated with the kind of cranks and the conspiracy theorists who were saying it was all part of some malign, you know, WHO, UN plan to to kind of control us. But do you think actually we maybe we missed our vocation to speak up for for the kind of minority groups and the and the outsiders who were suffering as a result of lockdowns? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I, I think it was understandable that it, the sad thing was, you know, the libertarian uh, people were not were not shouting on behalf of the vulnerable. Uh, they were shouting on their own, you know, it's my right to do what I want. You know, it's all about me. Whereas what the Christian voice always is about the, those who are most vulnerable, those who are, you know, it's it's the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. It's in, in Old Testament speak. So, yes, I think the Christian voice could have been heard much more uh, arguing for the most vulnerable and the churches, I mean, the churches did a lot, didn't they? The churches, some churches were doing a lot in terms of reaching out to uh, people with deprivation in their own communities. And uh, I don't want to downsay that. I think what was sad is that in the public square, that message was not being constantly reiterated, that our first responsibility is to the most vulnerable in our society, and rather than looking after number one. Yeah, yeah. And in, in, in fairness, that's kind of how I understood what I was doing, you know, as a person who was still is in the early 30s at the time, like, I didn't feel particularly worried about catching COVID. In the end, I did catch it, admittedly, after I'd been vaccinated, and I was basically fine within a week. And I understood that what I was doing by staying inside and by not going out and by limiting my social contact and wearing a mask was I understood it as a sacrifice I was making on behalf of dare I say it, people like you, Dad, the people who were well, more quite at risk. right. And I'm and very so, grateful, son. <laughs> and, I, and I saw it as an act, you know, without wanting to be too grandiose, as an altruistic act, an act of self-sacrifice for the benefit of, of those who were more vulnerable. But as you say, it, there are a whole bunch of other unintended consequences that we didn't really weigh into that calculus when we first started staying at home. And, and maybe, I think it'd be fascinating to know if, you know, if a pandemic starts again tomorrow, would there be similar levels of high compliance with lockdowns as we saw first time round, or do you think people have now got more jaded, more radicalized, more frustrated? 
second time round, would they be willing to go through it all over again? Well, it's a it's a mix, isn't it? I think I think I think yes to all of that, but also we are more aware of the potential harm, and particularly to young people, and would therefore would need more convincing hmm. uh, that the balance of risks was right. Yeah. Well, that one's kind of un- unproven, I suppose. That one we'll have to do in our uh, retrospective in ten years' time about the second pandemic, but. Um... <laughs> We mean we're going to be doing this in 10 years' time. Oh, yeah. We'll be coming back every few years and talking about <laughs> another infectious disease, I'm sure. The I'll be doing it from my old, my old, old people's home. I'll be coming yeah. in every more, every every week, Tim. Well, the listeners can look forward to that. Um, let's, let's call it... Even let's if call I it, don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's call it let's call it a quips there before this runs out of control. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us on this little journey. I hope it wasn't too depressing. Just kind of reawakening traumatic memories from a dark time none of us really want to go back to. But uh um yeah, I hope it was uh, I hope it was valuable and thought provoking. Um as always there's there's loads of stuff particularly around covid and and uh, the ethics of it on dad's website. That's johnwyatt.com. Do take a look. Lots of things about vaccines and um mental health anxiety lockdowns all of that uh lots of things to read and listen do do scroll back and find our original kind of series of eight or nine or so covid episodes when we first started this this podcast three years ago um on your podcast feeds um if you're interested in having a little time capsule about what it was like living living through it and trying to think through it live um and do get in touch with us i forgot to mention that last week please do get send us an email we love reading emails from listeners getting ideas picking up on things in our q a episodes you can email us that's molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk or you can message me on twitter i'm at t-s wyatt t-s-w t-s-w-y-a-t-t i had to spell my own name there briefly um Uh, But otherwise, we will speak to you again next week with another episode. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.